Hello, Wild Hearts, and welcome to Nixology. I'm your host, Stephen, and on today's episode, we will be discussing Stevie's sixth solo LP, Trouble in Shangri-La. Trouble in Shangri-La contains 13 tracks and plays for 56 minutes. It was released on May 1st, 2001. It peaked at number five on the Billboard 200 and would remain on the charts for another 20 weeks. At the time, this was Stevie's highest chart debut since 1983's The Wild Heart, which is a pretty awesome accomplishment. Trouble in Shangri-La had three official singles, Every Day, Planets of the Universe, and Sorcerer. Every Day and Sorcerer received full production music videos, which were staples on VH1's rotation. Planets of the Universe, on the other hand, received remix treatment by the one and only Tracy Young, which serviced Stevie to the clubs and gave her her first number one on the Billboard Dance Club play charts, which if you listen to the Immaculate podcast, you know is kind of a big deal, at least for me. The album was supported by the Trouble in Shangri-La tour, which lasted from July to October of 2001. Now, the tour would be interrupted a few times along the way due to Stevie's illness, she caught pneumonia, and also, unfortunately, due to the 9-11 attacks for which Stevie was actually in New York City and would inspire her to write the song Illume on Fleetwood Mac's 2003 album, Say You Will. Production-wise, Trouble in Shangri-La was produced by Stevie's friend and frequent collaborator, megastar Sheryl Crow, as well as John Shanks, Dave Kane, Rick Knowles, and Pierre Marchand. The album actually features quite a few guest appearances, obviously Sheryl Crow being one of them, as well as Natalie Maines from the Dixie Chicks, or the Chicks now, and Sarah McLachlan, Macy Gray, as well as guitar from Mr. Lindsey Buckingham, because, well, I mean, why not have guitar from Lindsey Buckingham? Interestingly enough, at one point during the recording of the album, Stevie actually collaborated with famed R&B producers and favorites of mine, Dallas Austin and Rodney Jerkins, but those tracks remain unreleased because Stevie didn't feel that they fit the vibe of the album, although I, for one, would kill to hear them. So, hey, if anybody has those tracks, you know where to send them, nixologypodcast at gmail.com. Be very uh, eager to receive. Trouble in Shangri-La is an important album in Stevie's canon. To me, It's arguably as important as her first solo record, Belladonna, in that it reestablished Stevie as a viable solo artist. I tend to view the narrative arc of Stevie's career in cycles, not to sound like Lindsay here. So before I go any further, I'd really like to draw a parallel out loud that I've always noted in my mind. So follow me here. Fleetwood Mac released their most successful album, Rumors, in 1977 propelled to number one by Stevie's incredible single, Dreams. 20 years later, in 1997, 
Mac reunited for the dance, and the flame of public interest was reignited, propelled by Stevie's incredible performance of another song, Silver Springs, which was left off of rumors. Similarly, Stevie released her first solo album in 1981, showing the world that not only was she a member of, well, really an integral member of this five-piece band, but that she had something equally as compelling to say as an artist in her own right. Fast forward to 20 years later, if we're seeing a 20-year parallel trend here, 2001, Stevie releases Trouble in Shangri-La, again proving that she was an integral member of a five-piece band, and that again, she had something equally as compelling to say as an artist in her own right. Notice a trend? Fleetwood Mac, biggest release, Rumors, 77, The Dance, 97, Belladonna, 81, Trouble in Shangri-La, 2001. So in many ways, to me, this feels like a full circle moment. There is a lot riding on Trouble in Shangri-La, too. Given the, and as much as it pains me to say this, lackluster, critical and commercial performance of Street Angel, and you all know how much I love Street Angel, not to mention, like, Stevie's own personal distaste for Street Angel, I'm pretty sure any number of record execs, label heads, even some of the fans, you guys have said this to me, wondered if there was an appetite for another Stevie solo album circa 95, 96. Now, once the dance hit, it was really clear that Stevie was still in heavy demand as part of the um, larger Shakespearean drama that is, was, and always will be Fleetwood Mac. But I think there were still some questions remaining about whether or not she could translate that momentum as a part of the band into her solo career. Now, thankfully for all of us, the answer to that question was yes, she could, and she kills it. The earliest seeds for Trouble in Shangri-La were actually planted in 1995, when Stevie began working on the title track while watching the media coverage from the O.J. Simpson trial. We'll get to that shortly when we get into the track list. She is going to work on what will eventually become Trouble in Shangri-La intermittently throughout the dance, throughout the tour, then while she was compiling the Enchanted box set and that tour, before finally settling in to work full-time on the album in 1999. So this LP did have a slightly longer-than-usual gestation period. And the musical world of 1995 was very, very different than that of 1999. Given the massive success of Lilith Fair, where many of the artists that Stevie's going to collaborate with on Trouble in Shangri-La would rise to international fame and acclaim, I think that the musical world at large was much more receptive, again, to the idea of the female rock star, especially one over 50. And in America, especially, we love nostalgia. As I prepared for this episode and listened to a lot of the clips that you guys will hear soon, I noticed that so many of the interviews Stevie would give during the Trouble in Shangri-La press tour were squarely focused on her past. Whether it was the decadence and the debauchery of the 70s, 
her addiction to clonopin in the 90s, reflections on rumors, even the 20th anniversary of Belladonna, it seemed that a lot of the interviewers saw Stevie's, as the history teacher in me likes to say, primary source knowledge of days gone by. And they began to really view her during this period as an elder stateswoman of rock. In many ways, this is the album and this is the period where Stevie fully transitioned from a kind of chart-topping contender to a legendary legacy act. And do not misconstrue me, because I don't say that as an insult. For example, I don't think anyone in 2001, up to including Stevie herself, was expecting a song like Every Day or Sorcerer to hit the top five on the Billboard Hot 100, like Stand Back or Talk To Me. Whereas they might have hoped for something like that X amount of years prior with a single from Street Angel or even The Other Side of the Mirror, which, as you remember, did have a pretty sizable hit with Rooms on Fire. I know that Stevie absolutely values commercial success. I mean, just watch the Destiny Rules documentary if you think otherwise. But I think that she's really realistic about her status in the overall universe of stars. There comes a time in pretty much every artist's career where they make the transition from a contender to a more legacy-oriented act. And Stevie Nicks, in my opinion, has done so better than anyone else that I'm a fan of. She currently sells out arenas at the same capacity, if not larger, than she did in the 80s. She is universally adored by a new generation of fans, including many of you listening who are younger than me. Some of you are in your teens still and love Stevie. And is held up as an inspiration and a point of reference, especially when it comes to style and fashion. Stevie's a mentor to legions of young female and male, hello Harry Styles, fans and singer-songwriters. And let's not forget that she was also the first woman to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, not once, but twice. This is all to say that to me, Trouble in Shangri-La has laid the groundwork for the last 20 years of Stevie's solo career. And what an incredible 20 years it's been. So now that I've given you all my standard preamble, I think it's a really good point to pause, let you hear from Stevie herself about the recording and the production of the album. You'll also hear a little bit from Sheryl Crow as well as John Shanks in the interview from Speakeasy, and we'll flip over to my thoughts on the other side. Well, of course, your new album, Trouble in Shangri-La, coming out May 1st here in the USA. Uh, tell us about the album. Well, um tell you about the album i'm very proud of this album uh it is called trouble in shangri-la and it was uh i started writing it in 1994 the last the like november of 1994 i wrote love is which is the last song on the record and then a year later in 95 november i wrote trouble in shangri-la so i had the beginning and the end i had the first song and the last song and then i that was great because then i knew i just had to like write the middle part um between then and now uh, taking the time off for the Fleetwood Mac reunion tour that w that ended up being about two and a half years worth of time 
um, of which I also wrote the lyrics for six of the songs on this record. So that was great because if I hadn't have done that, I don't think these six, six those six songs would have ever been written. You mm-hmm. know, because uh, when you go on a really big time, exciting rock and roll tour, that's a great place to write. You know, um, so I'm very proud of this record. It's exactly what I wanted to say. It is my vision. Uh, the Shangri-La thing is kind of about you know making it to the top of your field in any field and how difficult it is to stay there and how difficult it is to like deal with life sometimes when you get into Shangri-La therefore the trouble in Shangri-La and of course if there is no trouble in Shangri-La then it's probably boring Shangri-La and you think it isn't Shangri-La anymore (laughs) so then you're looking for the next Shangri-La so it's just you know I tried to create a little world for people to crawl into and enjoy and get away from the the world you know and then go back to their life and hopefully be a little bit be better Hi, and welcome to Speakeasy. I'm Janelyn White. If you listen to rock music in the 70s and 80s, her sound and her image are probably burned into your brain. That's because Fleetwood Mac were international superstars, and their lead singer, Stevie Nicks, was the it girl of rock and roll. Her solo career has been equally stellar, starting with the release of Belladonna in 1981 and continuing with the current release in 2001 of Trouble in Shangri-La. Critics have called Stevie's new album a triumph of resurgent creativity. Is that what it feels like to you? Does it feel like a resurgent of creativity? Yeah, it does. Yeah? Very much. What prompted that? Well, um, I don't know. It, 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 it uh, reminds me a little bit more of Belladonna. And I think because I really spent between 1975 and 1981 collecting the songs for Belladonna, even though I was totally working with Fleetwood Mac all that time, but I was collecting those songs. So this has been a real collection of the right songs for this record. Um, And they're all right. I mean, they're all the right ones, the ones I wanted. So that, creatively, this has been a great thing for me. It's been a great creative journey. classic phone calls where you're sitting around and I was working with this band and, and the phone rings and it's, it's oh, please hold for Stevie next. And you kind of go, yeah, right. It's her. And she goes, you know, if you send me uh, the instrumental and, and, and a lyric, I'll put my vocal on it. And, and I said, if you want, you can come over to my house and we can put a vocal on it uh, together. You just let me know what's, when's good for you. And she said, okay. Tonight. I'll be there in an hour. <laughs> well. Now, this has been not only a creative fulfillment for you, but new creative alliances were formed. And I'm thinking now of Sheryl Crow. Right. And you got together a couple years ago when they asked you to do two songs for Practical Magic. And obviously it worked so well, you did it again. Right. Um, Sheryl came into my life, though, uh, over a movie called Boys on the Side, which was probably five or six years ago. That's how I met her. Really? And I did one of her songs on, this, on, on that album uh, soundtrack. Um, when I first met Cheryl, I don't think I asked her to produce my record, but we did, you know, we really talked a lot about music and stuff. The next time I saw her was probably a year later, and that time I really said, would you be interested in producing this record? That's a big milestone for not only... Both of us, yeah. and women. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. It yeah. is. It's huge. Yeah. 
and it, it's wonderful because it's born out of mutual respect. Right, right. Um, Cheryl is, I mean, I think that when I asked Cheryl, you know, you want to produce this whole record, she was like, ooh, that's a lot, you know, that's a big responsibility. Um, but she totally got into it. She totally got behind, to, behind it, and she was really, she was really there for me. Uh, how about the biggest risk that you would say you took on the album? Was it just getting started in general, or? Um, for me, it was probably the fact that I realized right away that I wasn't going to be able to use just one producer. And I'm one of those people that, you know, I wanted, I wanted to have the continuity, so I want one producer. Well, that wasn't going to happen, so I had to, I had to like, accept the fact that I would be able to work with Cheryl on some of it, mm -hmm. and then I was going to have to find somebody else because she, she wasn't able to do the whole record. She had to go and promote the Globe sessions, so she really just couldn't, she couldn't do everything. So I really had to let her go at that point and, and figure out what else to do. So now that you've heard from Stevie and John Shanks and Cheryl Crow and gotten a really great soundscape of what went in to the production of Trouble in Shangri-La and where Stevie's coming from, it's my turn. My time to tell you how I feel about Trouble in Shangri-La. And I'm curious whether many of you will agree or disagree with me, but here goes nothing. As I said a few minutes ago at the beginning of the episode, I would argue that Trouble in Shangri-La is Stevie's second most important album after Belladonna because, like I said, it laid the groundwork for the last 20 years of her solo career and laid the groundwork for Stevie fully becoming the incredibly respected legend that she is today. Without Trouble in Shangri-La and the momentum that that album produced, there wouldn't be everything that we've been able to enjoy. Recordings, tours, movies, etc. As far as my personal preference, Trouble in Shangri-La is my least favorite album of the three that Stevie has given us in the current millennium. I'll give that a moment to breathe. As usual, I like to say, don't hit the one-star button just yet on the iTunes reviews. <laughs> but let me explain where I'm coming from. I love all the songs on this album. Every single one of them. All right, well, okay, maybe. There's one dud, but we'll get there. So why is Trouble in Shangri-La my least favorite post-2000 Stevie album? My bone to pick is the production primarily on the songs that John Shanks and Sheryl Crow worked on, as well as the mixing and the sound quality overall. Years ago, when I was a frequent lurker on the ledge and Say You Will had recently come out, I heard the original version of Thrown Down, which almost made the cut for this album, and I think most of you are familiar with that one. People refer to it as the Wall of Sound demo. And that description, Wall of Sound, has sprung to mind every time that I've listened to Trouble in Shangri-La, and I've listened to it many times over the last month. <laughs> Not really in the iconic, like, 60s Phil Spector, Be My Baby wall of sound, but to put it bluntly, Trouble in Shangri-La sounds like it was mastered for real player. And anybody listening who lived through the 90s will know exactly what I mean by that. The production is pretty muddy. Stevie's vocals aren't nearly as crisp as I like them to be. The girls, and Macy Gray, 
are totally lost in the mix to my ears, and there just seems to be a cloud of white noise and sonic fuzz covering like 70% of the songs. Which is a shame, because I think songwriting-wise, Trouble in Shangri-La is Stevie's strongest album of the last 20 years and contains some of the strongest songs of her entire career, which is, we're damn near at 50 years here. Listening to the album as a whole, songs like Love Changes, I Miss You, even like to an extent Love Is, stick out because the production is so much more clear than the rest of the tracks. Now, I could very well be in the minority here, but I, for one, was super pleased when we finally got in your dreams in 2011 and Dave Stewart had put Stevie's vocals front and center again, rather than treating them, in my opinion, as John Shanks did, like another instrument to layer into the mix. Now, it is a shame that the same clarity didn't carry over into all of 24 karat gold, but that's another story for another day. My 20-year anniversary, like, fantasy of Trouble in Shangri-La has always been that somebody would go in, maybe it's me once I learned production techniques, and remaster the album. And to paraphrase one of my favorite movies of all time, Mommy Dearest, tear down that bitch of AOL 5.0 fuzz and put Stevie's vocals front and center where they ought to be. Maybe for the 25th anniversary in 2026, like, who knows? A boy can dream. So I've gone on enough. I've probably lost like 40 people that were listening, but I have to be honest. Now let's take a deep dive into the track list. Davis from Sex in the City. She's actually sitting with Stevie in her dressing room right now. Let's take a look. What does the title Trouble in Shangri-La mean to you? Trouble in Shangri-La is all about how interesting it is when somebody gets to Mm Shangri-La that it's very hard to stay there and it's very hard to handle it. The riches and the Shangri-Lalian thing does cause people to completely freak out. So if you are strong enough to achieve Shangri-La and then actually stay there, then that's that's pretty cool. So I love, first of all, how Stevie says the Shangri-Lalian thing. I would like to adopt things being Shangri-Lalian. It's a tongue twister into my own lexicon. Before I go further into the tracks, and I should have said this earlier, but hey, it's my podcast, so I can say it now. I got a lot of positive feedback about the Enchanted episode and how you liked that I was a little bit more off the cuff and doing hot takes. So while I'm not going to time myself for each track on Trouble in Shangri-La, I don't have super extensive notes written. I'm just going to kind of spitball about what I love and maybe love a little bit less about all of the tracks on the album. And hopefully you guys will be into it because you seemed to love it last time. Anyway, going back to the topic at hand... Trouble in Shangri-La is one of Stevie's best title tracks, up there with the holy trinity in my mind of Belladonna, The Wild Heart, and Rock a Little. In fact, like, to be honest, I listen to Trouble in Shangri-La, the song, way more frequently than Belladonna or The Wild Heart, which is kind of weird when I think about it, but I do. It just appeals to me. It is also the best song on the whole album for me. 
She did not come to play with this one, ladies and gentlemen. And it is truly criminal that we have never gotten a live performance of Trouble in Shangri-La over the years. Now, I would imagine that with some of the vocal layering, it may be difficult to duplicate the sound of that on the live stage. But I loved the intro acapella sort of looped version she did on the Trouble in Shangri-La tour. I was looking for a mp3 gosh who talks about mp3s but i was looking for a soundboard quality version of that to edit into this episode and i couldn't find one so you'll just have to deal with me fantasizing about it unlike many of the other tracks i'll be discussing over the course of this episode i think that trouble in shangri-la the song is an example of where john shank's wall of soundy production actually works because for such an epic song, you need that epic whoosh of like just percussion and that oomph. It transports you to another place and time. And I can visualize everything that Stevie is speaking about and singing about on this song. As I said in the intro, Stevie wrote this one while she was watching the OJ trial. And I was like seven, eight years old when the OJ trial was going on. It was impactful enough that I remember significant portions of it because my mom had it on TV every day. There wasn't really much going on on daytime television. So as someone who is so intuitive and lyrical like Stevie, I can definitely see where her influences and where her inspiration came from on that front. I do have a couple of quotes that I want to read just about the gestation of it. And you can kind of hear more of her perspective on it. Stevie said that the title song, which I wrote during the OJ Simpson trial, is about that 16 million to one person who makes it to the top of their field and then has trouble handling Shangri-La. And it's not just about me. In fact, it's not that much about me at all. It's about a lot of other people that I see and I hear about. And you say to yourself, God, I made it. I'm at the top. I'm a beloved artist of some kind. And then immediately you think, I can't handle it. How sad is it that all of your dreams come true, but you just can't keep yourself together? And that line that Stevie uses repeatedly, you can consume all the beauty in the room. I know you can because I've seen you do it. What a powerful, resonant line that sums it all up. She also attributes a portion of this to being about Lindsay and about Fleetwood Mac, which I think on Trouble in Shangri-La is interesting because since she spent basically like two, three solid years as a working member of Fleetwood Mac again, That experience of reuniting the critical acclaim, the Grammys, being on the road for the dance, being back in the room with Mick and John and Lindsay in particular, and Christine too, it really had an effect on her and her songwriting. And an interviewer asked her about whether or not this song and this album was kind of constructed within the aftermath of the reunion and she said it's very interesting you would say that because i didn't sit down to write any of it about fleetwood mac but in fact some of the verses actually did touch on them the first verse of trouble in shangri-la is absolutely about Lindsay and me 
When I was writing it, I wasn't really conscious of that because I just write long poems. I write poems with about 20 stanzas, and some of them have to go when you actually put it to a song. But the I remember him, he was very young, no one spoke like him, he was someone, and I carried on like I couldn't stop. All of it for us, baby. All of it for love, basically. That verse is about Lindsay, and that is how the verses started out. The rest of the verses are about separate people, but they all come down to a common thing. Trouble in Shangri-La. So that definitely intersperses the common threads, whether it's the band Fleetwood Mac, whether it is her relationship with Lindsay, or whether it's just her observations of being a celebrity and seeing what goes on with other people at the top of their game really encapsulates the whole message of Trouble in Shangri-La. There is one other line that I want to spotlight, and I feel like it's a favorite of most people's. When she sings, I guess we don't believe that things could go that far. We all believe in people that we think believe in God. Now, not to get a religious interpretation here, but I feel like that line speaks to the philosophy of a lot of us out there that believe those in power or those who are celebrities, just people that we look to, look to their own better angels of their nature to prevail. And it is disheartening when people fall short of those expectations that we put onto them. We put people up on a pedestal and we want them to create for us. We want them to be aspirational and inspirational, but we aspire to be like them. But when there is trouble in Shangri-La, only the strong survive.
Okay, so I tried to press stop about six different times while that clip was playing, but I couldn't bring myself to do it because that is how much I love the demo for track number two on Trouble in Shangri-La, Candlebright. Now, I know a lot of people prior to Trouble in Shangri-La being released knew this song because it's been kicking around since, well, as you just heard, the days of Buckingham Knicks. And most people knew it as Nomad because that's kind of one of the dangers of this stuff leaking out onto trading circles or now onto the internet. Since we don't know what these songs are called, we give them our own titles like Planets of the Universe. People used to call that one No Light. So I love the line, I am something of a dreamer. That is the best part of Candlebright for me. Because unpopular opinion time, or maybe popular opinion time, I don't really know. I never really hear anyone discussing Candlebright. But I think this song needed a bridge or a middle eight or something to like punch it up to the next level. Because when I hear it, I'm always expecting for there to be a little bit more, maybe a key change or just something to make the narrative a little bit more interesting or ear-catching. But with that being said, I love Candlebright, and I especially love the demo that I played you. Clearly, this song was written about Lindsay. I have a couple of quotes from Stevie that I want to read. She said, I wrote Candlebright before Lindsay and I left San Francisco, and it was one of the songs that we came here with to get our record deal for Buckingham Knicks. It's not written about him, but it's written about us in our relationship. It was written in 1970, so I was only 22, and I was dreaming about now. I had never lived away from my parents when I wrote that song, so I had no idea what was coming. But I think that song is a pretty amazing premonition because it really is about how I would always travel back and basically keep the light on in the window so I could find my way back. And I think that sums it all up. I think that wraps it up in a very tidy little bow because Stevie is a bit of a nomad. She goes out on the road. She lives this vagabond lifestyle, but she always keeps a light on in the window so that she can find her way back to her roots and well, to the floor and that room with some lace and paper flowers. And okay, I got to shut up. I can't, <laughs> I can't go too much on about Gypsy because this isn't a uh, Mirage podcast. But Candlebright, I am certain someone will tell me Candlebright absolutely played in Barnes and Noble or Borders in the summer of 2001 right along with the next song. There were some of them older songs. A lot of them were new, and three of them were old. Ah, how old? 1974. Wow. 1976. And why? 1971. Oh, my God. How come they hadn't been on a Fleetwood Mac album or? Because when you're in Fleetwood Mac in 1975 and you're doing albums, you can only get three or four songs on a record. Part of being a Because you have three writers. That's really the only reason that I ever went away from Fleetwood Mac and had a solo career was because I needed another, you know, some place to put these other songs. So your next single that you're going to release for the new album is Sorcerer. This is one of the songs from uh, 1974. 
so Sorcerer was in the group of songs that became the first Fleetwood Mac record. Wow. And uh, it was written about Scary Hollywood, because when Lindsay and I moved to Hollywood in 1971, we were in our early 20s, and Hollywood was very scary. Sorcerer was really written about just that sort of foreboding side of Hollywood when people come there every generation. You know, there's a whole new bunch of people that come to Hollywood to be an actress, an actor, a rock star, whatever. So that was kind of my whole my whole premise on that. Wow, and you did a video. And you just did a video and Cheryl Crow is in it. So because she's singing and playing guitar in it and produced it. Yeah. So it's uh, it's not done yet, but it's almost done and we're really excited about it. It's gonna be great. And it was great because it is one of my favorite Stevie looks in a video. Let's kick off talking about Sorcerer by discussing that red lip. And if I had a dollar for every time I sang to myself, I'm tired. I would probably, well, I'd probably at least have $100, especially this summer because I have been so dragged out. But we will get to that a little bit later. Sorcerer is a really interesting thematic song on this album because of its story. So Sorcerer's been kicking around for, at that point in time, almost 20 years. Stevie kind of fudges the numbers and we love her for that because, you know, she's lived a long, full life. She might not know that it was 1970 instead of 1971 or 74 or 76. She can make up the dates as she goes along. But roughly, Sorcerer has been around since the hallowed days of Buckingham Mix. There was a series of demos called the Coffee Plant Demos because, well, they recorded them above a coffee plant. And Sorcerer appeared on that. It was actually played with Buckingham Knicks on their 1974-1975 tour. And just because I love you guys, before I go any further, let's give you a little taste of the Buckingham Knicks version of Sorcerer so you get a feel for it.
How cool is that? So Sorcerer could have very well been on the Fleetwood Mac, Fleetwood Mac, or the White Album, and I'm sure it was probably rehearsed or attempted for it. So now we're going to push the clocks forward mm, almost 10 years later, and Stevie tries out Sorcerer again for the Wild Heart album. You can listen to that particular version on the deluxe edition of the Wild Heart, and it's really, really good, in my opinion. I guess it wasn't good enough for Stevie, or maybe more likely it wasn't good enough for Jimmy Iovine, and it gets cut and winds up getting farmed out to one and only Marilyn Martin. Marilyn Martin had a hit with Phil Collins in the mid-80s with a song called Separate Lives, and Marilyn Martin also, to make a Madonna-related detour here, also worked extensively with Patrick Leonard and got one of Madonna's unreleased cuts that didn't make it for like a prayer called Possessive Love, which was very personal and very much written about Sean Penn. I encourage you to check that one out if you like Madonna. But I digress. Marilyn Martin gets Sorcerer, and actually, after 10 years of the song kicking around in the Buckingham Mix set and Fleetwood Mac and Wild Heart, gets it released on the Streets of Fire soundtrack. I have never seen the movie Streets of Fire, but I've heard it's pretty terrible. I'm just glad that we get this version because Stevie records some incredible, incredible vocals. And the Streets of Fire soundtrack version of Sorcerer is my favorite version of Sorcerer. I actually like it more than the one that is released on Trouble in Shangri-La. And that's no disrespect to Stevie. I love when she performs Sorcerer in concert. She's done it pretty much every time that I've seen her. It is clearly a favorite of hers. And I particularly love that Sheryl Crow challenged her to do those full kind of falsetto notes in the verses, which are incredible. And we hadn't heard Stevie sing in that register for quite a long time. I just wish that the production on the album version was a little bit more embellished. It misses a lot of the cool piano and the guitar and just the soul and the grit of the 1984 version. I think Sheryl Crow wanted to make it a little bit sleeker and a little bit more contemporary. So since I've gone on and on and on about how much I love the 84 version of Sorcerer, I'm going to play you out with that one, and I will catch you on the flip side for some Planets of the Universe. I'm tired I'm thirsty I'm wild In my misery
when we, went, when we went to San Francisco to record Rumors, we were there for two months in Sausalito. And we really recorded all the basic tracks there during that two months. So really, the record was really done there. And at the end of that two months, we went back to Los Angeles and spent a year just like, you know, fixing it and putting stuff on. So when we went back to Los Angeles after that two months, that was when Lindsay and I really broke up. And I wrote this song. So track number four on Trouble in Shangri-La, we have Planets of the Universe, which judging by Instagram is pretty much everybody's favorite song on Trouble in Shangri-La. And it is my second favorite song on Trouble in Shangri-La. It's very, very close to the title track. They're like neck and neck. Interesting fact for me on this song is that I heard it for the first time in the demo version, which had been released right before my friend made me the mixtape that got me into Stevie on the 2004 expanded edition of Rumors. And you can find it. It is the full version with Lindsay's guitar playing in there. And I fell head over heels. Took me about a year or so later to hear the completed version of Planets, which appears on Trouble in Shangri-La. And I was a little disappointed because it cut my favorite part. As I said on Instagram, if there is no overture to something that was best, and I love the way Stevie says the word overture, I don't want it. Planets of the Universe is a perfect Stevie song. I will accept Absolutely no debate on this matter. But what I will debate until the end of time is why in God's name she chose to cut the best part of the song. As I said at the front of the show, the album plays for 56 minutes. A standard CD at this point in time was 79, almost 80 minutes of music. So there is no reason there were space concerns. Now, my pal Randy, hey Randy, mention that he thought, in addition to the full version being cut from Trouble in Shangri-La, he thought it was a big missed opportunity for Stevie not to, at the very least, perform the extended version on the Trouble in Shangri-La tour. And I just want to say publicly that I totally agree with you. Why didn't we get that? I know she was having vocal problems on the tour, but my goodness, people would have gone wild for the real version, I like to call it, of Planets of the Universe. I'm such a diehard about this, and you guys know I'm a little kooky by now. I actually don't have this album version, the shorter one, on my phone. I never transferred it into my iTunes, and therefore it was never on any of my iPods, and all of that music got transferred over to my iPhone. My version of Trouble in Shangri-La just doesn't include the one that was released. So it was interesting in 
revisiting the album for this podcast to go back and listen to the actual album version, quote unquote, of Planets of the Universe. It was also interesting for me to go back and listen to the remixes of Planets because Planets gets one of Stevie's first club mixes done by Tracy Young is the most famous one. And it did, as I said at the top, bring her to the top of the Billboard Club Play charts. And that's amazing. After I re-listened to these remixes, I realized that I don't really like them that much. And that is no disrespect to Tracy Young. It's just a certain club sound that doesn't do it for me. At least doesn't do it for me anymore in 2021. But from a nostalgic perspective, I think they're great. And what I think is most cool about the Tracy Young mixes and the illicit mixes are that they brought Stevie to a new and slightly different audience. I can imagine that in 2001, if you were at the club, I was 14, so I was nowhere near, that it would be pretty fucking awesome to hear Stevie bouncing from the speakers as you're dancing your heart out, having a couple of drinks, and partying with your friends. I would imagine that was an awesome experience that I hope to recreate one day, maybe a night of a thousand Stevies. If they ever do that again, someone will, someone will join me. I did want to mention that despite all of this, Tracy Young liked my Instagram post about me not liking her remixes. So shout out to Tracy. You're amazing. I love your work with Madonna. It's just not a patch on the extended version. Which, you know what, screw it, let's play it here, and I'll catch you on the other side for every day.
This was one, though, that just is, keeps growing on me and growing on me, and I keep singing it, and I keep singing it. And it's just, I, it's great work. I just, I'm just, it, it kind of brought me back into the fold, so to speak. So thank you. I'm, I'm real happy for you. I hope this is a giant hit. When we come back, I'm going to play every day. And when we come back, we Do wanna... you want to. want the really quick story on every day? Yeah, oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, so last year at some point, uh, I was uh, walking through my office, and uh, on my assistant's desk, there was a, a, a CD, a white CD, and it just said every day written on it. And I, and I looked at it, and I thought, hmm, every day, Buddy Holly. Okay, I'll play this. You know, what is this? So I asked Karen what it was. She said, it's a song from John Shanks, and he sent it to you, and it's been here, and you haven't really listened to it, but here it is if you want to listen to it. So we did, and then I, call, I really liked it. I called up John, and I went over to his house and did the vocal that's there now, that you listen to now, um, at his house that very first day, and that... And every day led us into him producing uh, like a half of the record. So it was just like a, you know, I could have just passed the desk and never seen that song and never played it. It was so meant to be. It was really a meant to be thing. Yeah, yeah. Synergy. Mix 1029, you mix most music mornings with Jeff and Anna, 838, Stevie Nicks, her latest every day. I did not realize, Stevie Nicks, you had just in, in studio with us and uh, you had just mentioned, what did you just say about uh, three quarters of the way through that song? That this is the first time I've heard this on the radio. <laughs> How cool is that? Right. She heard it on Mix 1029. And it's a very big deal to have your radio, your record played on the radio in Dallas. And it is a very big deal to have your record played on the radio in Dallas. Thank you to my pal, my hero, Mike Bice, for sharing this clip with me. Because I had never heard any of this story about every day or her hearing it on the radio and getting all of that. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As usual, you are amazing. Every Day was the lead single from Trouble in Shangri-La, and it peaked at number 17 on the Billboard charts. And to me, <laughs> that's what Every Day is. Peak early 2000s adult contemporary. It is tailor-made for VH1 Top 20 Countdown, which by the way, it got an incredible video with swans and an enchanted forest and Stevie rocking some killer wavy hair. She didn't have a great time making the video, but my God, it came out beautifully. Definitely an appearance on a Women Who Rock episode of Pop-Up Video, if you remember Pop-Up Video. Every Day was 1,000% along with Candlebright and Sorcerer, a staple on every Borders and Barnes and & Noble in-store playlist circa summer 2001, which is crazy that that was 20 years ago. I know I keep saying that, but it is a just mind-blowing moment that Trouble in Shangri-La is 20 years old. I feel like this album just came out yesterday, and I wasn't even a fan when it came out. Burying the lead here. <laughs> Don't kill me, but Trouble in Shangri-La has one week song, and it is every day. I never skip it when it comes on, but I don't think I've ever woken up in the morning and thought, you know what? I want to hear Every Day by Stevie Nicks. That is the song that I want to start my day with. My issue, most of all, and most importantly with this one, is that it was not written by Stevie. It was written by John Shanks and Damon Johnson. And I've always felt that, maybe you felt this way too, that 
Every Day could have been on Michelle Branch's first album. Now, she did have a song called Everywhere, so maybe there were too many Every Day, Everywhere, Michelle Branch was just blossoming. But John Shanks produced that album. He was working with Michelle during, or maybe slightly after, the release dates are pretty close by, working with Stevie on Trouble in Shangri-La. So who knows? Perhaps this was written with another artist in mind. Every Day just doesn't feel like a Stevie song to me. And it is always troublesome, much like on Street Angel with Maybe Love Will Change Your Mind, when a non-Stevie penned song is released as the lead single. There is just something about that that rubs me the wrong way. So to wrap up, I don't hate Every Day. I do love the video. But in my opinion, it is the weakest song on Trouble in Shangri-La due to the production, which sounds like it could be, uh, you know, the beginning also reminds me of Ashley Simpson, Pieces of Me, also produced by John Shanks. I know that song came later, but I always think the two of them fit well together. Maybe that's kind of bizarre, but whatever, it's my podcast. And I love... To end on a positive note as usual, that so many of you guys do love every day and it resonates with you. Just because it's not my bag doesn't mean that it shouldn't be yours. Now let's move on to track number six. Uh oh, ladies and gentlemen, there is a plane and it's headed for London. There are a lot of planes to London on Trouble in Shangri-La. Like, what, what was in London that Stevie needed or that the people she was looking for needed? It's just a very specific non-continental United States point of reference for Stevie that we don't really see that much again other than, you know, like Italian summer on <laughs> In Your Dreams. Now, I was fully prepared to jump in on this episode when I first started writing it forever ago and talk about how Too Far From Texas was just kind of blah, whatever. But I have to tell you something. The song that I have come around the most on over the last month in researching and reliving and re-experiencing Trouble in Shangri-La is Too Far From Texas. I actually listened to it on my way to school this morning, and I just instinctively started to sing along with Stevie and Natalie Maines, and it felt good to sing. And it is definitely a singer's song because of the way that it was recorded. And I do want to read before I wrap up, because I don't have anything from Stevie on this one, and that's shocking because she did perform this on the Trouble in Shangri-La tour. but. This is what Stevie had to say about the recording of Too Far From Texas. Natalie Maines came to me through Sheryl Crow because Sheryl Crow knows everybody. I had noted two or three years before when Natalie Maines and the Dixie Chicks had just come out that she and I have very similar country voices and that I could definitely sing with her. So I just kind of put that in the back of my brain and never really thought about it again. When I mentioned it to Sheryl Crow, she said, well, let's send her the cassette and we'll see if she likes it. She did, and two days later, we went to Tom Preddy and the Heartbreakers member, Mike Campbell, uh, now a Fleetwood Mac. We went to Mike Campbell's and recorded Too Far From Texas live, 
with me, Cheryl, and the Heartbreakers, with the exception of Tom, and Wadi Wachtel. It was like a live band. We were all standing there playing together, and it came out great. And to circle back, I think that's why this is such an easy song for Stevie to have performed live on the Trouble in Shangri-La tour. Wasn't too vocally taxing. Some people complain that she's really nasal at the beginning. That doesn't bother me. That's sort of part of the reason why I love her. So that's never been an issue. And it's just an easy, fun song to sing along with. I don't know, and someone will correct me, I'm sure, if I'm wrong, but I don't know if Stevie and Natalie ever got the opportunity to perform it together. But one would hope in the future that the Chicks and Stevie would cross paths at a festival or some sort of concert event, and one of the two of them would slot too far from Texas into their sets. And maybe that plane that's headed for London would finally land, and we would figure out who this mystery passenger is that's got these two girls so hung up. I'm inclined to believe it's Lindsay, but I feel like that's just a badge of honor I wear as a Stevie fan. We all have to think every song's about Lindsay, right? (laughs) Unless it's about Joe Walsh. Tom Petty gave you a little bit of tough love. You've known him for a long time. You started working with him on one of his albums, I think 1979, 1980. And then he wrote uh, a duet for his album that he didn't use. That he didn't use, yeah. And you snapped it up right. for Belladonna. But what was the tough love that he gave you about your own creativity since we're on the theme of creativity? He basically, uh, he came to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Phoenix, Arizona, and they were playing the next night. And I live in Phoenix, so I went down and had dinner with him. And I just, I didn't ask him to write a song for me. I asked him if when he got back to L.A., maybe he might work with me on something, basically. And I think Tom took that as a real red flag, like a flag of, you know, something's really wrong here. And so he basically said to me, you know, in all the years I've known you, I don't really think that you ever have asked me to help you write a song. You've asked me to sing. You've asked me to be on your records. You've, you know, but you've never really said, I need you to help me write a song. And he said, and I think that there's, that's really not cool, Stevie, because you are a songwriter. That's what you do. And, you know, that's why you didn't get married. That's why you don't have kids. That's why you're not tied down. Was so you could be a songwriter and, you know, that was what you wanted to do. Tom has been my friend for so long that when he says something to me, I know he would never say anything to me if he didn't really mean it. And I know he always has my best at heart. So when he said, you know, you just need to get in your car, go back to your house, and write a song, Stevie. It's, you know, I know that you're, you know, you have things that you've been, you know, not happy about for a long time, and those things are getting in your way. So give that up, let that go, and go forward here because we just, we just reinvent ourselves. That's what we do as rock musicians and singers, you know. So just go do that. And I took it from him. I did. And I went home and I did it. I did start writing songs that night. I don't think I actually wrote a song that night, but I absolutely went home and spent some time at the piano and felt good about it. So... Given what Stevie just said here, I don't have a whole lot to add about the gestation of That Made Me Stronger, which is track number eight on Trouble in Shangri-La, but I would like to offer an opinion, a twofold opinion. First fold of my opinion is that That Made Me Stronger is the second weakest song on Trouble in Shangri-La after every day. 
And the only reason why it's not the weakest song, in my opinion, is because, well, she did write the song herself because of Tom Petty's urging and insistence, which is great because I will always take a Stevie written track over a non-Stevie written track. But I almost don't think of that made me stronger as a song. It is more of an idea or a like a, a, a sonic landscape or something. It just doesn't hang well as a song. And I found it interesting that of all the tracks to discuss in the making of Trouble in Shangri-La, this was the one that she was asked about the most. And I guess maybe that was because it was really easy for interviewers or people in the press to tie it into the fact that, you know, she had had some stumbles in the mid-90s. Street Angel was not a hit. She was feeling a little bit disenchanted and a little bit burnt out. And at that low point, asked Tom to write a song for her. The second fold of my opinion on That Made Me Stronger is that although it is very important that we heard this story and we got this perspective about a time when Stevie was feeling less than inspired, when Stevie released 24 Karat Gold, Songs from the Vault, and included the song Hard Advice, I don't want to say cheapened, but I feel like it sort of blunted the impact you know, okay, maybe this song isn't my favorite Stevie song, but the message behind it was a little bit muddied and it was a little bit blunted because she revisited it 13 years later with Hard Advice. And I think Hard Advice is the better song. I hardly ever listen to That Made Me Stronger. I will press skip on this one, whereas I won't press skip on every day. Hard Advice for me, was a standout from 24 Karat Gold. I love the melody, and at some point we'll get there and we'll talk about it further, so I don't want to spoil it. But if you've got two songs in your canon and two songs in your catalog that reference the same event, I think that Hard Advice is the stronger track. Although That Made Me Stronger came first, if you're just getting into Stevie now, as many of my listeners are, and you're like, wait a minute, she wrote a song about this already on 2001's Trouble in Shangri-La. Why did we get two of these? Point for point, pound for pound, I think Hard Advice is the better tune. And as much as the attention was paid to That Made Me Stronger, the song never made the set list. And although Stevie has retold the story again during 24 Karat Gold, she hasn't really made much of it since. So I think this is an example tying back to my legend and legacy narrative at the beginning of the show. Interviewers in the press were very interested in Stevie asking Tom Petty to help her write a song, but no one really commented on the quality of the song because, in my opinion, not one of her best. So I wonder, posing the question to you, I scoured the ledge. I was on there for years as a lurker. Nobody on there likes that made me stronger. No one has DM'd me saying it was one of their favorites. So, APB, if anyone likes that made me stronger, if it's in your top five, send me a DM and we can chat. I'll have you on the show because I'm very curious. Now let's move on to number eight. It's only love. The thing that really um, affected me the, the night before I got up and wrote the song was that Stevie was talking about today, 
right now uh, the ultimate relationship. When I woke up the next morning, I thought, how incredible that here is this extremely strong woman who everybody knows, and she's had relationships with the most fantastic people, and she's not bitter, she's not um, cynical in the least. And I sat down and wrote a song about somebody who says, it's only love, it's only love, ah, oh, but if only love comes around again, it will have been worth the ride. It's only love, ah. It's Only Love, track number eight. This is a favorite of quite a few people. I got a lot of feedback on this one when I posted the promo CD that had been circulating that Mike Bice sent me. And thank you again for that because it generated a lot of conversation. I adore this song. It is one of my favorite stripped down Stevie moments. And despite the fact that Stevie did not write It's Only Love, and I have gone on and on on this episode and previous about the fact that I prefer the song Stevie writes to the ones that others write for her. Cheryl really captured Stevie's essence. She captured her energy, and she captured her current state in life and as a recording artist. Stevie was definitely in a contemplative mode during the production of Trouble in Shangri-La. And for someone like Cheryl, who is a huge star in her own right, and, you know, let's not forget, got her start in the industry as a duetting partner and backing vocalist for uh, the King of Pop, Michael Jackson, has had her fair share of experiences with megawatt celebrities. So to be invited in to Stevie's world and to listen to all of these incredible stories about her life and her loves and her career has to be impactful for a songwriter like Cheryl. And I think it's a testament to their friendship and it's a testament to both of their skills as songwriters and performers that, you know, Cheryl took her guitar and wrote this song for Stevie. and. It is beautiful. I always include It's Only Love on any sort of Stevie playlist or Stevie mix that I make. And I don't necessarily relate to the lyrics on an emotional level, but it's touching to me. And it kind of tugs at my heartstrings a little bit. It's very intimate. It's very stripped down. It's one of the few times on a Sheryl Crow or John Shanks produced track on this album that Stevie's vocals are 100% at the forefront. They're unadorned. I love the falsetto that she does, much like the falsetto on Sorcerer I talked about earlier. And it's just a hell of a song. I wish it was performed live regularly. I know Stevie did do a pretty infamous version of it where she was either, you know, under the influence of something before Trouble in Shangri-La came out and it was a little messy. I like that version because it's interesting as almost like a curiosity in her live output. And it is also a curiosity that 
Cheryl would then re-record the song herself for her Come On, Come On album in 2002, which was a huge hit. I am not really a fan of that version, despite, again, typically preferring songwriters to sing the songs they wrote themselves. Say that five times fast. But it is a favorite of my pal Wayne, who hosts the Madonna Get Together podcast and who I know is listening. So shout out to Wayne. You're the first person I've ever met that likes the Sheryl Crow version more than the Stevie version. Hopefully no one gets out their pitchforks and skewers you for that one. But I love It's Only Love. I know you love It's Only Love. But sometimes love changes. So going from a song that everyone loves, as opposed to a song that I don't really hear many Stevie fans enjoying, we now have track number eight, is it? Track number eight? Track number nine, whoops, Love Changes. I don't know why people don't like this song. Is it because of the production? And that it's so different because for me, Love Changes is a breath of fresh air after the heaviness of songs like That Made Me Stronger, Too Far From Texas. Every day, they're so loaded with that fuzzy, reverby, muddiness that I don't like about Trouble in Shangri-La. So we get It's Only Love, which is pretty much acoustic, and that is such a game changer. And then we go to this dreamlike space, almost just R&B, a little bit of a beat to it, a little bit of a groove to it, of Love Changes. And Stevie has never spoken about this song. Stevie has never performed this song. I think for most folks, it's a song that people skip. And I just love it. To share a very personal story, this was a song that in... Uh, my previous relationship, when it ended, I turned to this song for a lot of comfort. It uh, resonated with me lyrically just, and, you know, I'll read you some parts that really resonated. It's, it wasn't that I didn't love you. I just couldn't make you see that as hard as I tried to make it all better, it was not better for me. Being in a situation where it's not that you don't love the person, but you try, 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 try for them, and it is killing you in the process was something that was very resonant with me. I'm not happy. I'm not crazy. Are you listening? Do you hear? Everything happens for a reason. Stay clear. The concept of only saying what someone wants to hear, staying clear when there's conflict, When somebody is loving, they're like love bombing you, you're in tears, someone knowing your fears and taking advantage of you. It's a dark song wrapped in a very light, buoyant production. And although very few people would cite this as one of their favorite Stevie songs, it's a top 10 for me. I, maybe not top 10, I'm going to go with top 15. I'm a little uh, overzealous sometimes in my rankings. 
But I encourage all of you who maybe have overlooked love changes in the past to go back, seek it out, take a listen to it, and tell me that it is not a gorgeous, gorgeous tune. And on a deep cut side note, this also, Sessions for Love Changes, gave us the wonderful outtake, Call on Me for Magic, which I do hope to discuss at a later date. So we'll get there when we get there, but seek out Love Changes. I don't have any lyrical uh, inspiration or any really perspective from Stevie on this song, but I love it. And I hope that at some point in time, you'll revisit it and you'll love it too. Now let's move on to I Miss You. It's so hard for me not to sing the opening lines of I Miss You. <laughs> I actually started and then cut it out because I was like, nobody wants to hear my singing anymore. But this is another singer's song. Track number 10, I Miss You. I adore this song. I don't, again, know very much about it, but I would like to offer what I have always thought. Someone did ask Stevie in one of those online interviews, and, you know, this is the part of her career where there's a lot less radio interviews or TV interviews that discuss the new stuff, but she did participate in a lot of online chats where, you know, since she doesn't have a computer or know what the internet is, I'm sure that Karen was just tap, tap, tapping away at the keyboard. On Borders, they asked Stevie if... I Miss You was about Lindsay since, well, he does appear on backing vocals and play the guitar solo. And see, she said, well, it's not. But a lot of these songs on the album are about Lindsay. (laughs) Now, I'm not one to doubt Stevie or doubt her intentions, but I have always felt that she wrote this one either on the dance tour or after the dance tour was over. And my feelings on that are, number one, because obviously the Paris to Rome, London to Paris, Fleetwood Mac did go on a European press tour. They played the Brits and Vettendas and a bunch of other, you know, little mini gigs here and there. And I have always been of the opinion that if not a full-on rekindling, there was definitely some feelings that were awakened during that tour between Stevie and Lindsay. I am not going to cast aspersions or get into gossip, but I think every fan worth their salt realizes there was probably some love going on there, some reawakenings of feelings. And the chorus, I miss you now. I have so many questions about love and about pain, about strained relationships, about fame, as only he could explain it to me. Well, you leave the road after being out there with your ex-boyfriend who you've had this tumultuous relationship. It's a reunion after so many years of being apart and there's all these feelings that are being kicked up. I would imagine that she did miss Lindsay And that she did have so many questions about pain and about strained relationships. Being the invisible girl, I'm not really sure that Stevie could ever pass for being invisible. She's a pretty strong presence. 
But I think that there is a melancholy to this song I've always appreciated. Anytime Lindsay adds guitar to a Stevie song, a Stevie solo song, it is always a special moment. I love his backing vocals. Another one, I'm genuinely shocked he didn't pop out at like a uh, Arizona Heart Institute benefit and give her a little duet moment on I Miss You. But hey, the hatchet could be buried. Lindsay is a single man. Maybe we'll get an I Miss You performance in 2021. You almost got some vocals again, but I refrained. I held back for once. Bombay Sapphires. Yes, I can take you higher. My third favorite, tied for second favorite, I'm going to say, song on Trouble in Shangri-La. I have played this one literally 458 times, according to iTunes. I love Bombay Sapphires from start to finish, the production, the vocal, the fact that Stevie went back in and produced it herself, which lends a certain level of just coolness to it, for lack of a better word. I love everything about Bombay Sapphires, and it sucks that we don't have any audio of Stevie discussing the gestation of this song. However, I do have a couple of quotes that, as usual, I would like to read into the record because a lot of people were curious about this song because Stevie worked with the one and only try to say goodbye and she chokes, try to walk away and she stumbles, Ms. Macy Gray. So let's, I'll read you what Stevie had to say first and then we'll talk a little bit more. Bombay Sapphire, someone asked, is your favorite song on the album? And she said, yes, because it's a song that I thought had a great message. I wrote it in Hawaii two years ago. At that point, in order to write the rest of the songs for this record, I really had to leave my Enchanted Box set and Fleetwood Mac behind. Hawaii was very different than any place I'd ever been. Very green, jade green, very calm, very zen. And I realized that if you take yourself to a great environment, you can get over just about everything. I was looking outside one day and it was like almost seeing my past as a little bit of something that I really wanted to leave behind for a while. I was looking past the past, out to the ocean and how beautiful it was and how white and inviting the sand was. And I thought, I can see past you to the white sand. Had to. And a message back to me that you were moving on now. You are really moving on. You're letting go of all of that stuff that bothered you and you were moving forward. So for me, it was very important that that song wound up on the record. I recorded it two other times, one of which with Dallas Austin, and I didn't like it either time. So I went back for a third time and played it myself to get it the way that I had written it when I was in Hawaii that night. And her synopsis of that I think is why Bombay Sapphires has resonated with me so much over the years. You get to a point in time where you really do want to leave the past behind and you want to leave those versions of yourself, your past selves in the dust. And you're in a beautiful location, somewhere tropical perhaps, and you're looking out at the white sand and you can see past that previous version of yourself. You can see past that person 
to the white sand that's so inviting and the ocean that's going to just welcome you in to your next phase. And Bombay Sapphire just, it's amazing for that reason. Coincidentally, as I think all of you know, Bombay Sapphire is also a brand of gin, and this has provided me with my favorite Stevie Nicks quote that I have adopted as my own despite never really drinking gin too much, and that's that gin makes you mean. <laughs> so I just want to read this other quote too. It says, let's talk about one of the songs Bombay Sapphires has the liquor company thanked you or sent over some product. And Stevie says, no, they haven't. And it's not Bombay Sapphire, it's Bombay Sapphires with an S. I knew people were going to hit me with that. I got the idea many years ago. It's a blue-gray star sapphire thing. It's the color of the ocean, and that's what I wrote it about. So I purposefully put the S on it so that they wouldn't think I was writing about gin. Gin makes you mean. It's definitely not a liquor I would have written a song about. <laughs> I just love when she says things like that. So we know I love Bombay Sapphire, but I did Bombay Sapphires, I should say. I don't want to get in trouble. We don't want to have a Bombay Sapphire gin coming to shut down the podcast. I got a little trouble on Instagram for saying that I couldn't hear Macy Gray in the mix. And I'm here to tell you, I have played this song multiple times and I still can't really hear her. I mean, there's definitely faintly a voice that is not Stevie, but it doesn't sound like Macy Gray to me. Maybe it's just because their blend is so good. But it is sort of an interesting pairing for the two of them to have collaborated on a song together. Stevie initially wanted Sting, so... Her manager suggested since Sting was unavailable touring for the Brand New Day album and being Sting, being, you know, engaging in some tantric sex with Trudy Styler, <laughs> her manager, who also managed Macy Gray, suggested that Macy join. And she walked in the door and said, quote unquote, I do not do harmony. And Stevie said, well, OK, let's take the melody off of Bombay Sapphires and put the high harmony in and you just sing it like it was the melody. And that's the only part that ever existed. And apparently that worked. And we got these harmonies from Macy Gray that I can't really decipher, but they add something special. They add a little extra to Bombay Sapphires to make it one of my favorite songs on Trouble and Shangri-La. So yeah, why wasn't this song a set list staple? Why didn't we get this on the 24 Karat Gold Tour? Can she perform this in 2021? Please, please, please. And for all of that, why don't you press pause on the podcast, go to Spotify, and stream I Try by Macy Gray in our girl's honor. I can't even begin to tell you Trouble in Shangri-La is the new CD and I absolutely love it. Thank you, Rose. It's just so great. It is. And Fall from Grace, I was just saying, is my favorite cut on the record. And it almost didn't make the record, so... Yeah, people... It was... People, I was... Yeah. You have to, like, you have to sort of fight with, with yourself? You or? have to find the right person to yeah. do each song because um, I, I just was telling you that my little friend Cheryl Crow, she could not figure out what to do with Fall from Grace. Right. And she just said, I can't figure it out, so we have to find somebody who can, you know, and luckily for me, John Shanks said, I can do it. I, I get it because it was this close to not being on the record. Well, I'm glad it is so, my favorite cup, but the whole CD thank is amazing. I love that Stevie calls Rosie O'Donnell Rose. I feel like no one does that, but that is just, thank you, Rose. It's such a Stevie moment. Oh my God. I love it. 
and Fall From Grace. I mean, Trouble in Shangri-La as an album really, really ends strong. You got Bombay Sapphires, and now we have Fall From Grace. I'll read you what Stevie had to say because her story about this song is kind of wild. She said, Fall From Grace is really about Fleetwood Mac on stage. That's always mostly going to be about me and Lindsay, just about our energy and what a trip it is to be in Fleetwood Mac and walk up there on stage. It's just grand, you know? It's a very grand thing. It's nothing like your solo career. Don Henley and I always laugh at each other sometimes. There's our solo career, and then there's the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, which seems to take precedence over everything else that we do. The original version of this song had all of these verses, too many in John Shank's opinions. So we set out to edit the song to fit in a workable structure, and it was just breaking my heart to hear some of these words slip away. Then Laura Dern and Patricia Arquette were like, you can't cut out these words. Poor John, they were yelling at him and giving him a hard time. It was all done in fun and good spirit, but it convinced me that I had to fight for my words. Before the night was done, we got every syllable in, and it's become one of my favorite songs on the album. So, folks, we need to send thank you cards to Laura Dern and Patricia Arquette, I mean, of all the folks, for saving Fall From Grace from the cutting room floor. It's a tour de force of a song. Interestingly, one of the times I saw Stevie live, she opened with this one, which was sort of weird, but also kind of worked. I could not just kind of get more amped up than when I hear this one. It survived in the set list for way longer than anybody probably would have ever expected it to, being a album cut on the second half of an album from 2001 stevie was still performing it pretty regularly up until like 2012 2013 so fall from grace far outlasted some of its compatriots like bombay sapphires that didn't even make it all the way through the trouble in shangri-la tour so hats off for that one i will direct you all and i know you know what i'm talking about to stevie's performance of this one at the blockbuster awards which imagine that number one blockbuster still existed and number two that they were big enough to have an award show but stevie and cheryl but mostly stevie gives a top five maybe even top 10 quality live performance of fall from grace and this was at the point where I don't even know that she was actively promoting Trouble in Shangri-La anymore, because if she was doing that, she would have done maybe Every Day or Sorcerer. But she comes out there guns blazing and just lights it up at the end when it's the maybe I am calmer now, maybe things are fine. Just blasts it off into the stratosphere. I posted a clip of it on my Instagram that I am pleasantly surprised has not been removed. So if you don't know this performance, head to at Nixology Podcast on Instagram or just type it into YouTube because you will not be disappointed. And I'll end it by saying I'm never upset if there's a Fall From Grace performance. I love the reference to Say You Love Me by Christine McVie. I've always thought maybe she wrote this one about Christine and Christine leaving Fleetwood Mac. But I want to get too much into alternate theories. So Fall From Grace rocks. It kicks ass. We all love it. And I'm sure it'll get a setless performance in 2021. So now we've only got one track left and we're going to take things down a notch. We're going to get a little sentimental 
and discuss the last track on Trouble in Shangri-La, Love Is. It's not often that a songwriter gets to actually discuss a song with her audience. And I do take this moment to actually do that anyway in the last couple of weeks. Um, in my life, there have been two songs that have ended my set since 1981. The first being Beauty and the Beast, and the second being Has Anyone Ever Written Anything for You, also though. Last year, when Lori and I were going through all our tapes trying to find stuff for this record that I just finished making, we found this cassette and it said this name on it, and it kind of faded ink, and I realized that there was a song that had sort of gotten lost in the dust ten years ago, and that I'd always sort of thought that this might be the third ballad. And so I played it, and I looked at my friend Lori, and I said, this is it. Um, it's time now to change. This song uh, came to me at a time when I was having a very hard time. And somebody stepped in and put the pieces back together. And really, uh, it was a brilliant moment. And it couldn't last, but it was a brilliant moment. And it saved my life. It's called Love. So before I dive any deeper into Love Is, and apologies on the audio quality for that one, but I did want to include that story, I wonder if the same person she wrote Love Is about was the one that she wrote for what it's worth about on In Your Dreams. Definitely something to explore in the future. But Love Is, I think, is a stunningly beautiful, gorgeous song. And I know that Stevie wasn't particularly fond of the instrumentation and of the way in which Pierre Marchand and Sarah McLaughlin produced it, the recorded one, the released one. But I, for one, adore it. It gives me such a feel. I know that a lot of people think it's a Sarah McLaughlin song featuring Stevie Nicks, but for me, that's kind of awesome because there's a part of my youth where I was obsessed with that whole surfacing mirror ball era Lilith Fair kind of sound. And I also get very ghostly, misty, Kate Bush kind of vibes from Love Is, and that levels it up to an entirely different plane. It's interesting to me, though, that Stevie considers this to be like her third great ballad, because if I were telling you what her third great ballad was that could end her set, I would definitely have picked Doing the Best I Can from The Other Side of the Mirror. But people were very moved when Stevie performed Love Is in concert. I saw her end the show with it twice on the In Your Dreams tour. And I had a woman standing next to me who broke down into tears and just was sobbing during this song. And I haven't had that many experiences emotionally like that from a concert performance, but I was so moved, like by proxy, secondhand, that after I witnessed that, Love Is took on an added level of gravitas and just emotional connection. It is a brilliant, stunningly gorgeous song that I was so happy 
Stevie kind of rescued from her own personal dustbin and brought back into the set and brought back into our lives. And I think it is a gorgeous way to close the Trouble in Shangri-La album. It almost gives you a sense of release and relief at the end. And I really love the fact that Stevie chose to end the album with the lyrics, Am I happy? Yes, I am. Do I know you love me now? Yes, I do. Do I know you cannot stay? I know. All about love. You're so very powerful. And I think that line of being very powerful is a triple meaning. Stevie is very powerful. The person that she said goodbye to is very powerful in his own way. And we, the listeners, are so very powerful. And we have given her strength on her journey. And in return, she has given us strength on our journeys. And I don't think there's a more beautiful way to end the Trouble in Shangri-La album, a set list in a Stevie Nicks concert, or an episode of Nixology, the Stevie Nicks podcast. So before I say my usual goodbyes for the episode and hang up my mic, I did want to give you guys a little bit of a podcast production update. And I'm sure this should come as no surprise because, well, it did take me a little bit longer than usual to put out this episode. But I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break between Trouble in Shangri-La and the In Your Dreams episode. Kind of like what Stevie did, because it was 10 years in between those two albums. Now, I promise you it won't be 10 years in between my next two podcasts. But obviously, you guys know I'm a teacher. I am starting a new job in September, which I am super, super excited about. It's something that I've wanted for the last three years. So I really need the time to prepare to get myself together, to get inspired and excited for my students, and also maybe a little time for a vacation and just live in life. So the good news is that there will be two, maybe three more episodes of Nixology before we call it a day on this podcast. We still have to do In Your Dreams, 24 Karat Gold, and I would really like to do something about the demos. I just don't want to commit to a firm, concrete timetable. I need the time for me. And I know you guys will all understand that. So in the meantime, give me your feedback. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Nixology Podcast or on Twitter at Nixology Pod. Keep in touch and I will see you hopefully soon. But if not, sometime in the future to complete this journey through Stevie's catalog. Take care. And stay wild, my wild hearts. Am I happy?